The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Sup, church? How's everybody doing? Survived? You haven't melted yet? Uh, grab your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 for today's text. Um, not the most riveting passage in the world we'll cover today, but I will make you this promise. I will withhold any Taylor Swift references this week. Um, except for this, I will say this. I apologize. You're right. There were five hates in the song, not six. What I'm ashamed of is how many full-grown adults were the ones that came and corrected me of that, not teenage girls. But all right, whatever. You were right. I was wrong. Um, if you don't have a Bible, stick your hand up and wave it around. One of the guys will make sure that you get one. Um, while you're turning there, if you'd lend me your ears, I got some announcements for you. Church at the fair, volunteers, and summer baptisms all coming up July 16th. Probably some information in the flyer you got when you came in. There's more information available at the Connect desk. We still need a lot of help in some areas for that. Um, first Wednesday coming up on July 5th, Wednesday night at uh, 5.30 is dinner. With Curbside King, we've uh, hopefully got some things figured out to bring some of those lines down, as well as a different food option also for smaller children if you're coming. Um, and by the way, I have been given a specific assignment. I'm in charge of the ice cream for the kids afterwards, and I have a plan. You don't want to miss that. You don't want to miss that. I mean, you guys can have it too, but you parents are going to ugh when you see what I've got planned, and it's going to be awesome. Um, and then the third thing is this. Um, women's ministry, the write the word program that they're doing starts July 1st for this year. They're going to be writing the book of Mark for the next few months. Uh, information again, available at the connect desk on your way. And then one thing that's not on our actual announcement list is, um, I apologize, right after this service, I'm going to be scooting out of here pretty quick because I'm actually hosting um, all of the Acts 29 pastors in the state of Oregon. They're all coming down. A friend of mine has a cabin up at Lake of the Woods. We're going to go up there for a few days, and um, we're going to be spending some time um, strategically looking at and praying about um, how to plant more churches in the state of Oregon in particular. So a uh, really cool opportunity for us to all get together. In fact, also, the director or the president of the board of directors for all of Acts 29 is actually flying in to uh, hang out with us while we're up there. So um, pray for us, if you would, while you're up there, that the Lord would just um, um, anoint those plans for his glory and that we could just spread the gospel through more church planning throughout Oregon. Amen. Um, in the meantime, I've got, uh, let's, we're going to cover a big old chunk of text today. So join me on your feet, if you would, for the reading of the word of the Lord. We're going to be starting in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, and going all the way to chapter 3, verse 13. And the word of God says this, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as word of men, but what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who both killed or who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets. And drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but God's wrath has come upon them at last. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. 
because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distresses and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before God? as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. And now may God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we just thank you, Lord, for this time, this ability to worship you and enter in and now come to your text, Father. And, and Lord, we, even as the text says, we receive this for what it is, the word of God come to us. So may our posture as we bow in prayer now be representative of the inward posture of our heart, soul, and mind as we bow before you. May your word have its way with us. May you teach and change us. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Oh, my rock, my king, my redeemer. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. you may be seated. Well, we're in a little bit of a transition section today. We're going to go through a big kind of chunk, the juicy parts, you might say, of the book of Thessalonians kickoff next week. So make sure you stick around for that or come back. You don't have to stay here for the whole week. You can come back. But... um I know recaps can get redundant, but for today's text, um, it's important that we understand them. And also for those who, who weren't with us, but it's important that we remember what's going on because Paul's going to give kind of a narrative of what has been going on all along. As you guys know, Paul was in, um, in Philippi. He planted a church there and then persecution came. He ended up in prison, but God got him out of there. And so he moves on from Philippi and he makes his way to this city known as Thessalonica. And Thessalonica, as you know, is a really important city. It's a, a trade city. It's a port city. It's the largest city in all of Macedonia. It's a very wealthy city, business-oriented, and very um, uh, culturally diverse. People from every background, all sorts of different gods and religions, all of this is there. And Paul comes into this city, and, and the text tells us in the book of Acts, when we read the story of this church's planting, that Paul came in, and he spent three Sabbaths, or about three weeks, going into the synagogue and reasoning with the Jews. And th this is what it means. He would go into the synagogue, and you've got to remember, the Jewish people, the Jewish faith then, they had the same Old Testament we got. 
And they're studying the Old Testament and they're reading about them being God's chosen people and how now maybe they're in exile in a sense. You know, the Romans are in charge and kind of dominate the world. And especially in Thessalonica, you've got people that have been displaced. They're not in their actual homeland right now. But they're reading about a day when this king's going to come. And this king's going to pull everybody together and, and everything that's wrong is going to be set right. This Messiah that they're waiting on to come and rule and reign, kick Rome off the throne and establish Israel the way it's always supposed to be. This is what they're studying. And so Paul would come into the synagogue as they're studying these texts and he would reason with them to say, hey guys, this king has come and he's teaching them the gospel. He would come in and talk about this Jesus who came and suffered on behalf of their sin, who, who went to the cross carrying the guilt and shame of all of their sin on his shoulders on their behalf. How Jesus died but rose again from the dead and defeated sin and death has now ascended into heaven and that anyone who puts their faith in him could be saved. And then that this kingdom has now been inaugurated, though it hasn't yet been fully consummated, and that king's coming. And so that day that they have been waiting for all along when this king's going to come and rule and reign, it is coming, but it's Jesus Christ whom they at first rejected that they're waiting for. He's preaching the gospel to him. And it actually tells us in the book of Acts that, that when everything got stirred up, it was because there was a specific part of the message that he was preaching that was causing everyone to freak out. He was saying, and it tells us in Acts 17, he was preaching another king, Jesus. So he's not just preaching Jesus loves us, died for our sins. But he's preaching that Jesus is king. That he rules and reigns and is coming to rule and reign again. He's going to get into this heavily at the second half of the book of Thessalonians when he deals with the return of Christ. But that was the issue that caused all the problems. And when he preached this message of Jesus is king... Everything blew up in town. There were riots. There were mobs that came to try to arrest him. And the heat got so intense that they snuck Paul out of town at night so that he could go on to the next place and begin continuing his mission, his missionary journey to plant more churches. Um, so Paul goes on to Berea. He does the exact same thing. Heat builds up again. He goes on to Athens, has just a little bit of success, if any at all, really there. And now he's currently in a place called Corinth. And as he's in Corinth, he's there physically, but emotionally his mind and his heart is still back in Thessalonica, as you can see when you read through this text. Um, this book um, kind of reveals Paul's heart for his churches really more than any other letter that Paul writes. And the reason is kind of obvious. He, he's bounced out of there or been run out of there really and then made his way onto this place, but he was only in Thessalonica for three weeks, a month tops. There was so much more he wanted to teach. There was so much more he wanted to do with these people. It was such a strategic town. It's important for the spread of the gospel because of its crossroads and port there. He knows that if a strong church builds there, the gospel is going to be going into all sorts of other cultures. Um, but at the same time, he just genuinely loves them. And he's heard about the persecution. It wasn't just him. We know Jason, who housed them, got arrested. We know from reading later in the text that there are those who have died, that the persecution got hot in this town. And, and Paul, as much as he loved them, ends up leaving. And now he's even been thrown under the bus by his critics. They're all saying, man, that guy doesn't even care anything about you. He just came for the money. The heat got on him. All this persecution came against him and he just left you guys. And so there's a lot of uncertainty for Paul. And what's going to happen with this church? Is it going to survive? Is it going to make it? 
Are they going to stick around? Are they going to hold true to what I taught them? Or is the heat as it builds up going to cause them to compromise and eventually bail on what I've been teaching them this whole time? And he doesn't know. So he sends, as you can see in the text we read, he sends a guy named Timothy. Timothy makes his way back, spends some time with him, encourages him for a little while, little while, and then comes back to Corinth to tell Paul what's referred to, even in the text, literally the word he uses is gospel or good news. He brings the good news of what's going on in Thessalonica back to Paul and says that they're doing really, really well. And so Paul writes this letter back to them, and you can see it as you read it. There's this relief in the beginning, and there's this worship and praise and thanksgiving. Oh, I'm so glad you're doing good. Man, I'm so encouraged by you guys. I was so anxious, but now I hear what's going on. And you'll see in the text as we read through today, there's times where he's like, we couldn't stand it. We were dying to know how you guys were doing. And so this text that we're looking at today, this particular chunk, is kind of a transition piece where Paul is going to kind of give us some insight into what was going on in his own mindset, his own heart, and his own prayers during that season where they weren't sure what's going on. And he's going to tell us exactly the report of Timothy when it comes back. When, T- when Timothy came to Corinth and told Paul what was going on there, what is it specifically that he reported about the church in Thessalonica, especially in light of the persecution that was there? And I think it's really fitting for us because um, I don't think it takes too much of a rocket scientist to know that in our culture, we are increasingly becoming a post-Christian culture. And if that should continue, it's very likely, and actually in many cases already likely, that if we choose to live the gospel of Christ effectively and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, and and not just like, oh, Jesus loves you, not just this sentimental Jesus, but that he is the king, well, we're going to find things getting more and more difficult as well. And so to be able to look at this church and see how they were navigating, like what is it they were doing in spite of the persecution going on around them is very, very important, I believe, for us to consider today. Um, so this is what we're going to be looking at today here in Acts chapter, uh, excuse me, Acts, in First uh, Thessalonians chapter 2. And we're going to start in verse 13 where Paul says this. And we thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. And so we talked about this, you guys know, that they didn't just subscribe to some sort of philosophy, that this faith was not just a a mental or even emotional subscription to a set of beliefs, but this faith was a real thing that God was doing even in their hearts and in their lives. And if the story should end right here, it would be kind of a happily ever after story. Like, man, I got the news. You guys are doing great. Your faith is growing. That is awesome. Good luck to you guys. I'm going to move on to the next place. But in reality, that's not what happened. Um, The effect of their faith in their lives internally was having a pretty significant effect on their lives externally as well. And so Paul, Paul writes about it. He says in verse 14, for you brothers became imitators of the church of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. Pause there for a second. He's like, man, I'm so encouraged. I got that report. I'm so encouraged to know what's going on. And, And I found out, man, you guys, the gospel came. Our preaching wasn't in vain. You believed. You took it not as the word of men or some philosophy, but the word of God. You believed it. And you became just like the churches in Judea. Well, you would think, well, awesome. Yeah, good for us. Except 
what does that mean? Just like the churches in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and oppose all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. Think about what he says there. You became, I mean, the, that faith was real. And it was doing something and it was changing you. And I'm, I'm so glad to see that you became even just like all the other Christians. What was that life? What was that like? It, it, life got hard, just like them. Like the whole experience they always had, just like you too. And he's kind of like almost excited about that. The testimony, hey, life got hard for you. Life got difficult for you. Despite what the televangelists on TV want to tell you, giving your life to Jesus Christ, becoming a Christian, and choosing to follow Jesus Christ is not the recipe to find a happy, full, wonderful, best life here on earth today. It actually makes things really hard. It makes things really difficult. It puts you at odds with a lot of things and a lot of people, Satan in particular as well. I mean, this is just the reality of it. And suffering and difficulty for those who follow Jesus has been built into the gospel message from the very beginning. I mean, just consider for a second some of the things that Jesus said to his followers about what it was going to be like if you genuinely forsook the rest of your life, took up your cross and followed him, take up your cross and follow him. He said, you have to die to yourself. He said that if you want to find your life, lose it. He said that the greatest in my kingdom are slaves to all. He said, hey, the world hated me. They're going to hate you too. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. And he said, behold, I send you out as sheep amidst wolves. Now just think about that a second. I mean, if you went to the fairgrounds and found some little 4-H kid's sheep and snuck it out, went over to wildlife images and found, I'm, I'm assuming they have wolves there, and, and you just chucked it over the fence just to see what would happen. <laughs> that's going to be a pretty violent scene that's going to go down, right? There's no, no lammy tomorrow for sure, guarantee you. And Jesus is not, not just saying, man, it's rough out there, watch out. He's saying, I am purposely sending you out amidst wolves who want to destroy and devour you. I'm not sending you out to fluffy clouds where rainbows will follow you around everywhere that you go. I'm sending you as sheep amidst sharp fang beasts that want to rip you to shreds. Go get them. And, and that's what's been described. This idea of suffering and difficulty for those who want to be followers of Jesus is built into the DNA of the Christian experience from the very beginning. And in Paul's case, you see, he actually seems to speak of it as if it was proof that they actually got saved. Because look at the text. In verse 13, he's thanking God for this genuine salvation. This faith, you didn't receive words of men, you received the words of God and then what does he say? And what's his like proof, it seems, that that actually happened? Verse 14 says, For, brothers, you became imitators and suffered. In other words, I know your faith was real because you ended up suffering. It's like an indicator that they are actually Christians. 
not just followers of some philosophy. If you're just buying into Christianity because you're looking for some sort of philosophy, it's kind of a dumb philosophy to follow if it's not real. If it's just a genuine or general way of life and all the things that we build our life and faith are on aren't actually real, why would you die to self in this life now without the guarantee and hope of heaven that you have to come? That'd be a complete waste of time. Why in the world should we take care of those who are weaker than us if this is all we get? Like as far as philosophies to go, there's probably better ones. But if the faith is real, if Jesus is real, not following a belief system, following the King, Jesus, who saves us and can restore all of things back together and restore to us all the things that the enemy has taken all these times. If we're following that guy and he's real, then it's a great idea. But this is the criticism, remember, against the people there. You're just following some dumb philosophy and now your lives have become more difficult because you're following this? Why in the world would you do this? But Paul seems to make it really clear, as does Peter in his writings, that suffering is a characteristic. It is a natural mark of what it means. It is an actual, real part of the experience of being Christian. Why? Because the original message that we're talking about here is that there is another king. That's the issue that sets it apart. It's not like, you know, Buddha was just a nice, fluffy, fat dude, and he probably would have been fun to hug. Let's follow him. And, And Jesus was also just such a nice guy with his flowing beard and all that stuff, and you could follow him. And Gandhi, what a nice guy. You saw the movie. We could follow that guy. Just choose your nice guy. Like, that's not the message of the gospel that Paul preaches. Paul preaches a king, overall, a ruler. And when you do that, when you proclaim a king and a kingdom in the midst of enemy territory, you instantly put yourself at odds with everyone else that's around you. It is literally no different than going to the deepest, darkest parts of Syria or Afghanistan, finding an Al-Qaeda or ISIS headquarters somewhere, walking up to the front door with an American flag over your shoulder, knocking on the door. When they come to the door going, what you got? They're probably not going to offer you tea. They're probably not going to give you a robe and a pillow and tell you to just chill out and read a book and enjoy the sunshine. They're going to attack you. And when you become a Christian, you are instantly at war and a target of the enemy, Satan himself. And you're in a place surrounded by people who have built empires and built their lives on other gods and other kingdoms. And you're coming in declaring allegiance to another king. The gospel is instantly an affront to that. And we, we oftentimes spend so much time trying to figure out how we can present the gospel message in the most tasteful, least offensive way possible. And I understand the heart in that, that you want to communicate in a way that touches people's heart. Um, but there is no way to make the gospel unoffensive to the world around us. In, in fact, if the gospel you're preaching doesn't com- come with a mixture of those who are finding new life and giving their lives to Jesus and those who hate you because of it, you're probably not preaching the same gospel that Paul preached. Seems like every time he preached, he had to run for his life shortly after. And why should we think that our experience should be so different? When Jesus said, they hated me, they'll hate you. So take up your cross and follow me. We would rather go, I'm going to hop on a parallel path. I'm going to be Jesus-ish but I know where that road leads and I'll just hang here to the side. 
But that's not what happens here in the scripture. And, and to Paul, this idea of suffering and difficulty in our life now today is ingrained and built into Paul's actual gospel proclamations even to early churches. That this philosophy that all the televangelists and all the prosperity preachers have about, you know, man, if you follow Jesus, look at all the awesome things that are going to happen to you. They could not possibly be more different than what Paul preached. It just couldn't be more different. Because look what Paul actually teaches them. Fast forward a little bit here into chapter 3 and start in verse 2. Look what Paul says. We sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as is it come to pass, and just as you know. So he, he's telling them, hey, remember when I was there? I told you this message is not going to be a happy one to the world around. And for you to follow Jesus, you will suffer affliction. And now he's going, hey, remember I told you, if you're following Jesus, you're destined to this. We told you about this and now you know. That couldn't be more opposite than those who would say, hey, follow Jesus because he'll make all your dreams come true. Follow Jesus because the, the problem that you're having with life is that you need Jesus. And, and so we can paint these caricatures that, that come to people in difficulty and go, man, you know why your life's so messed up? Because you don't have Jesus. And if we're not careful, which is, that's true though, amen? I mean, that's true. And without Jesus, our lives are messed up. But if we're not careful, the picture we paint is that if you now get Jesus, everything else is going to, your life won't be like a country song. You know what I mean? You won't lose everything. You're not going to lose your job. You're not, your wife will come back. You won't struggle financially anymore. That depression you have, if you pray right, that's going to go away. All of those things, are gonna, that's not the normal Christian experience throughout history. You know, well, wh why is that such a big deal, Jeff? Why should we echo this? Well, for one reason, um, the Bible. <laughs> 1 Peter 4 says this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Even Peter is saying to the guys, look, when hard times come, don't freak out. That's normal. Don't, don't call the difficulty you're facing something strange. And see, our, our tendency is when we feel friction, when we feel difficulty, when heat builds up, we tend to go, whoa, something's wrong here. What do I fix? What do I navigate? What do I adjust? Because I felt friction and that was uncomfortable to me. And so I have to do something different. But that's in, in Paul's writing and in, in Peter's writing, a lot of times the friction and difficulty that comes with actually following the words of Jesus and following living a Jesus life and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world, that friction's actually an indicator that you're doing it right. And, and that friction is something that is being used in us because you would go, okay, that's awesome, Jeff. Suffering's part of it. And okay, they did that, but Jeff, you're not 
Paul or Peter, much less Jesus. And, you know, we live in a culture already right now where it's not a, a popular message. And so you're saying that it would be good for us to let people know that, man, following Jesus does not smooth out their paths. We should tell them that following Jesus is a really difficult thing in the world today. That's a depressing message, Jeff. In fact, I'm bummed now, Jeff, and I'm already saved. Shut up, Jeff, and can we just get out of here before it gets hot? Well, here's the good news. For the Christian, suffering is redemptive. Like, we're all going to suffer. First of all, let's clarify something. I'm not talking about suffering because it was 108 degrees yesterday. Everyone suffered because it was 108 degrees yesterday, right? You understand that? When we're talking about difficulty and persecution here in the Bible, we're talking about that which comes because you, in your life, are genuinely seeking to honor and follow Jesus Christ. Sometimes you experience difficulty and suffering because you're absolutely not honoring and following Jesus Christ, and God uses suffering to discipline us, but even in that, he's still redeeming the suffering that comes. It's not the exact same suffering, though, that Paul's talking about here. But God redeems suffering. Take a look at this famous passage we all know and love. Romans 8, 28 and 29 says this. For we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Can I point out something depressing and obvious about that text, by the way? We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. It does not say, we know that for everyone on earth, all things work together for good. And and why can we say that? Because there is a suffering that is not redeemed. There is a suffering that does not work together for good. It's the suffering Paul alludes to when he talks about those that are opposing him. Now, in the text... He, he speaks about these Jewish people in Judea who were persecuting the church there in Israel. And just so you know, that text has been taken out of context and used to commit absolute atrocities throughout the history of mankind, specifically those against Jewish people. It was texts like this that were even used early on in Germany with regards to the Nazis and many, many others who want to persecute Jews by saying the Jews are the enemy of the church. They don't count. They're God's enemy. They are fodder for the flame. Anyway, see, Bible says that God's wrath is coming upon them. And so people have taken that text out of context. Um, Because in truth, even as enemies of God, what do we know about that? Well, Jesus says, love your enemies, not kill them. So know that, first of all. But in the text, Paul is pointing, though, to a time. He uses this phrase. It's a little bit cryptic, a little bit uh, maybe artistic or the way it's written. But it says this, that so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but God's wrath has come upon them at last, or literally forever or completely. The idea is this, there's a certain point when those who oppose God have exhausted the patience of God. It's as if the the sins that they were to commit hit a point and it's over. And for those people, their suffering is not redeemed. Their suffering does not work good for them in any way whatsoever. And I can remember, I've, I think I've told this story before, but it bears repeating. Um, there was, a few years ago, there was a book by Rob Bell that came out, and um, it, it was a, uh, a book that kind of tried to uh, uh, 
get rid of hell in Christian theology. The, the idea was like, we have, a, we have a bad understanding of this concept of hell, and, and we've got it wrong, and there's not really a hell. There's not really that kind of suffering, and we shouldn't talk about it or teach it. It doesn't really apply in this culture anymore either. We, we shouldn't have anything to do with that. And, and so I was at a pastor's conference once where there was a panel of guys um, that were dealing with this book, because when the book came out years ago, and don't go read it, it's a terrible book, but back in the day when that came out, um, it was kind of a hot topic. And so all these guys were on stage, and they're going back and forth, and you know, it's just a bunch of pastors in a pastor's conference, and we're all theology nerds, so we're getting excited about things most people don't get too fired up about. And, and James McDonald was on the panel, and he's a fiery guy anyway, if you know him, preacher from Chicago. And he was making his point, as he does with his loud voice and pounding, and all the way James McDonald does stuff. And he's doing this thing about how absolutely to take this out is not uh, uh, honoring the Bible. Of course this is in the Bible. Absolutely there is a literal hell. And then Alistair Begg, one of my favorite preachers, in that classic Scottish voice kind of interrupted him. And he said, I, but can you say that without a tear in your eye? And we, man, that should be sobering. That should be motivating. That should be humbling. It should be sobering because we need to realize the reality of that. What that would be like to perish and suffer with no redemptive quality, no hope whatsoever. It should be humbling because it's not us, those who have given their lives to Jesus. Not because we've earned that salvation that it was just given to us like that. It should be humbling, but it should be motivating. Because you know people that if tomorrow is that day for them, you know people, all of us, we should know people anyway, out there that are going to be in that category. And their suffering will not be redeemed. And that should motivate us to want to share the gospel with them. And you can even bring suffering into that equation to be able to tell them that, look, For those who know the Lord, our suffering is redeemed. Our difficulty is redeemed. God uses these things. He uses them, as that text says, to mold us into his likeness. He uses suffering to rid us of our dependence on things that will not sustain us. He uses suffering to discipline us, to draw us closer to him. And he uses suffering to remind us we aren't home yet. And we're not supposed to get super comfortable here. I mean, that suffering is helpful, like to, to help, rem, help us remind, like, don't plant your stakes too deep in the ground here, man. We're moving soon. 1 Peter 1, 6 says this, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Even if we don't understand it now, this this suffering that we're going through now, it is temporary at best. It is being used by God for his glory and for our benefit. And there will come a day when we stand before Jesus Christ the King. All of those things will make sense and we'll be blown away at how good he was to even use the fallen things in this world and our own fallenness in such a way that he heals us and he changes us and he redeems us and restores us. His wisdom in this is amazing. So Paul gets word 
So they got saved. They really got saved. And then the persecution came. That's in line with what happened in Judea. They're going through this difficulty because they gave their life to Jesus. And so what was it that Paul heard about them then? In the midst of this persecution, what was the actual testimony from Timothy? Not just like, hey, hard times came, but how, how did Timothy address like it? And we know they're doing well because. We'll take a look. Beginning in verse 5 of chapter 3, Paul says this. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, you can see his heart for these people. It's, it's so clear. Like he's waiting to hear from them and he doesn't have word. He has no response as to what's going on and he just can't take it anymore is what he's saying. When I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news, which there literally is the word gospel, that he's brought us the gospel, the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reasons, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. So Timothy brings back report of a couple of things to Paul. Three things, really. One of them is like, by the way, Paul, they do still love you. I mean, I know you came into town and you preached a gospel that turned their world upside down and even some people have died, but don't freak out, man. They, they love you as a father. The way that you love them as children, they love you still as a father. And who doesn't want to hear that? Amen. But then there's something interesting. He, he talks about the way the church is navigating things, like what they are becoming known for in spite of the suffering that's happening all around them. And it's two things that he points out. They're listed for us there in verse 6. It says that the good news of their faith and their love. Faith here. When he says, hey, Timothy came and he told me about your faith. Again, he doesn't just mean a belief system. Hey, Timothy came and he told me, you guys believe, but you know you really believe. That's not what he's saying there at all. The word faith there um, literally translates trust or standing fast. And, and so what it means is that it's steadfastness, it's faithfulness, it's, it's a belief in something that causes you to stand on it. So in the same sense that I believe this stage will support me and I will stand on it, in the same belief that you believe these bridges that our roads will support you so you drive across them, these people believe in Jesus Christ and they believe in the teachings of Jesus Christ and the teachings of Paul about Jesus Christ so much that they are standing firm on them no matter what's going on out around them. They're not being moved. Now, I talked about that again. When, when friction comes... We have a tendency to stop and go, what can we change to make this, uh, to, to reduce friction here? What kind of oil can we put on it to reduce the heat? What can we do? What can we change and do differently so that we don't feel this kind of heat? And Paul talks about the fact that, man, I, I was worried that my labor with you had been in vain because the tempter would come in. So what, what does he mean? What he means is it would have been really easy, and I'm sure the temptation was there for them to go, okay, okay, okay. It's been a month, Paul left, now it's been a couple more weeks and this heat's not dying down. Maybe we should think about this message we're preaching here. Maybe we should back off the king part a little bit. We probably don't want to talk about things like wrath and burning in hell forever and things like that. Let's, let's back off some of that stuff and we'll, we'll just emphasize like Jesus being nice, that he loves everyone, 
that he, he, you know, we're joint heirs. We'll talk about father and adoption and family, and let's leave some of these other things out. The idea is that sometimes when, when we feel friction, we can be tempted to compromise. And this is actually already happening in our culture all over the place with churches everywhere. I believe 100%. That book about hell that was trying to disprove hell is a compromise of the teachings of Jesus Christ in order to try to fit a culture and make Jesus seem more palatable. How palatable is Jesus if they killed him when he walked here to those who don't love Jesus? And to compromise on those things is, is really, really risky. So first of all, for us to think that we can change the message of Christianity in such a way that our preaching of that gospel and living of that life doesn't cause us to suffer means we have forgotten the reality that we follow a crucified king. And so to follow him is to follow him in that. That's why he said all of those things. In this world, you'll have trouble. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. The servant's not greater than the master. This is going to be part of your experience. But sometimes we want to go, okay, I, I know, follow Jesus. But if we just change a couple of things, we can hop on one track over and maybe this one won't end in the train wreck that we know this one's going to end in. As if it following Jesus actually ends in a train wreck. That's short-sighted vision anyway. And so we, we have to decide, number one, are we really following a crucified king who said, take up your cross and follow me? And then second of all, too, are we following a king at all? Because if we're taking his message and changing it to our liking to benefit us so that we don't feel, cr feel friction, then whose word is it? It's not his, it's ours now. And this is what Paul praises them for. I, I'm thankful that you received the word, not as the word of men, but the word of God. And yeah, it caused him difficulty. Yeah, it made him supremely unpopular in a lot of circles. It was really difficult. It caused a lot of tension, but they stood fast. And actually, if you think about some of the teachings of Jesus, it may actually be their steadfastness on who Jesus is and the teachings of Jesus that while it may have created suffering around them, actually gives them the strength at the same time to be able to endure it. Here's what I mean by that. Here, let's look at one of Jesus' teachings, a famous one, Matthew 7. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Growing up, I always thought this teaching just meant, hey, if you're a Christian, you're, the storm's going to be okay, just, just all about Jesus and we're going to get through everything. But if you actually look at what Jesus says, he's talking about standing on the teachings. He says, if you hear these words of mine and do them, and this is coming off the, the, the parable, the, the Sermon on the Mount, the kingdom teaching on what it looks like to be part of the kingdom of God. And so the storms come. But the one who stands upon those is able to endure the storm because you're standing on the words of the God that knows how to navigate us through them. To stand on anything else and think that's going to make things better, number one, doesn't understand the fallen world because even in that story we see storms come for everybody. Storms come for everybody. Um, but number two is to, to fail to understand that the very God who asks us to stand on these things is the one who knows how to get us through them. 
And then Timothy brought other good news. It wasn't just the good news of their faith, that they were steadfast, but it was the good news of their love. And the word love here, it's the Christian word for love. It, It means one who is love characterized by a willing forfeiture of one's own rights and privileges for the sake of others. So it's, it's Jesus' love. It's the kind of love. We know the story, the, the text in Philippians where Paul writes that Jesus, who is God, set that privilege, right, and even uh, power, if you will, aside and humbled himself to serve us, that even to a cross, Paul writes. And now this church, this church, three weeks, a month old, has this same message, same gospel in them, and their faith is doing something in them. And what is it doing? It's making them like Jesus. So you've got this group of people in a, in a city and culture that was so wealth-motivated. Like everyone comes to this city for business and money and wealth and advantage, and now they're trying to set those things aside, and they're serving one another. And they've become characterized by this kind of love. Now, I think it has two aspects. I, I think in one way... In the middle of the difficulty that they're dealing with, this church is bonding together in brotherly Christian love, this new family of God. People from all sorts of different backgrounds, all sorts of different nationalities, now loving one another in a genuine way that helps one another through suffering. And if you've been walking with Jesus very long at all, you know, man, the love of God's people, when difficulty and suffering comes, it is invaluable. Amen, those who have benefited? Amen. But I think that if we stop there, we miss the full force of what's being talked about and what the king they're following did. Because they're not, they're not just loving one another. They're, they're loving the people who are persecuting them as well. Think about that. They're standing firm in their faith. And it's causing people to hate them persecute them, even kill them. And their response to those people is a response of love. And this is the teachings of Jesus. Look at Matthew 5, verse 43. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you only greet your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? I think I told you guys this even a couple of weeks ago. I'll, I'll do it again. We, our staff went up to Portland and we were at a, 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 a seminar thing that um, Western Seminary put on and um, Art Azurdia, he's a professor and pastor up in Portland, was there preaching. And, and he was preaching in the book of Acts about the mission of the church to spread the gospel everywhere. And he, he said this, it has resonated in my head ever since. He, he said, we've got to stop looking at those who oppose Christianity as the enemy. And we've got to start looking at them as victims of the enemy. So think about that. They're in a culture and in a place where their gospel message is turning their lives upside down. People are dying because of their faith. And the response that that church became known for and the same response that is preached to the church throughout all of the New Testament is to respond even to those who are wielding the blades with love. And church, that is so what we gotta do. 
if things should continue the way they seem to be going in our country, and I tend to be more of an optimist, but, but let's say that things do continue the way that they do seem to be going. We are no question in a post-Christian world right now, no question about it. And it would seem that unless revival were to occur, that things will just continue in that way. And it's going to get harder to be a Christian. Um, persecution is already happening for our beliefs. You know, the cake bake story in Portland and things like that are happening all over the place. That will likely continue. And so what should the Christian response to those things be? We are so polarized in the world that we're in right now. And and everything, man, from social media to the news to talk radio to, I mean, everything is so polarized And everyone is so convinced they're right. And the response that happens so often to those who make claims that are offensive to or against the belief systems we hold, the response almost always tends to be attack. Oh yeah, you said that? And mockery, name-calling, belittling, all of those things... And so much of the time, the people brandishing the arrows that are being thrown are Christians. I wonder how many people we completely isolate from any possibility that they're ever going to actually listen to our gospel message. Because we just mocked and belittled and caused so much animosity between people that they, they 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 don't care what we have to say. But we have to understand The enemy of Christianity is not the people. They're victims of the enemy. And our mission as Christians is to love our enemies. We're to respond with love. And and why and how do we do that? Because Jesus Christ was the one on the cross who even as the soldiers are crucifying him is on the cross saying, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. And what was the response? The soldier, surely this was the son of God. I don't, I don't see a lot of those kind of conclusions to arguments on Facebook, do you? I have yet to see anyone, even, even on a non-religious argument, go, you know, I've listened to what you had to say, and you're right. I completely apologize for everything I said. You win. I've never seen that before. Have you guys seen that? If someone even feels that, they don't even say it. They just delete their comments, don't they? But, but church... I understand that our culture seems to be headed on a path that is supremely unchristian. And there are things that we want to do as parents, as citizens, to want to restore America, that we want to, to fight for the rights and religious liberties and all those kind of things. And, that, and there are no, those are noble things. I'm not dogging that. But they are not the ultimate thing that the church is called to. Because our ultimate citizenship is not as Americans. It is as citizens of the kingdom of God. And instead of winning our argument, Our goal is to win their soul to Jesus. And we will not argue people into the kingdom ever. But you could love them there. That's what Jesus did to us, right? And and why should that be our stance? They're idiots. They're mean. They don't believe in Jesus. They're mocking Jesus. Because while we were enemies of the cross, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And he took all of his privilege and all of his power and all of his authority and he willingly set it aside to save a wretch like me. And then he calls me to follow him. 
And that means responding to those who hate me with love, which is so hard. That means looking at those who are outside the gospel of Jesus Christ as people who need the gospel, not as enemies to be beat down so that I can win my argument. And that means also remembering that the king who saved me is coming again. And if they don't meet Jesus, we know what that means eternally. Amen, church? And so what's Paul's response to that? When Paul hears of how they're responding in faith and love to the persecution around them, he wants to see them now more than ever. Verse 9, For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before God? As we pray most earnestly, or literally more than ever, as we pray more than ever night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. So now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of his saints. Paul wants to see him now more than ever because he knows they're still young. He knows they're still lacking. He knows there's more persecution coming. But even more than that, and he alludes to it at the very end of the text, the coming of our Lord Jesus, he knows that Jesus is coming again. He knows that the king that they serve is real. He knows that the kingdom is active even today. And he wants to equip the church and encourage them to walk with that same hope and that same mission. But that all comes in the next chapter. Will you guys stand with me? Father, on behalf of, of this church, I pray, God, that that would be, um, that the testimony of the Thessalonian church might be similar to that of heritage. God, may we be known for our faith, standing on your word without compromise, believing and trusting you even when it causes friction or difficulty, trusting you, being motivated by you and standing on you, preaching your gospel. I pray, God, that that would be um, be said of the people at Heritage, that they are steadfast. But I pray, God, that we would not be arrogantly or rudely steadfast, but that we might also be characterized by love. Not, not just for each other, though. I, I pray, God, our church would grow and grow and grow in its love for one another. But may we be known, Lord, as a church that loves the lost, that has a heart for those that don't know Jesus, that is somber and humbled and sobered by the reality of an eternity apart from you and is motivated, Lord, not just by that, but by the hope that you're coming, Jesus, by the hope of the kingdom to be soon, Lord, we pray, consummated to share the gospel with others. May that be said of heritage, Lord, that they love each other, that they love others, and that we're steadfast on your word. And we pray by your spirit that would be possible. I pray, God, you would be with everyone here, Lord, this morning as we go about our ways this week. I pray, Lord, for this time with the Acts 29 pastors this week and that you would just use this church and others like it, Lord, just to, to spread your gospel all over the world. And then we pray, Lord, ultimately, even as Paul wants to point this church to, we pray, Lord, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Lord, come alleviate our suffering. Come alleviate these things. Come alleviate, Lord, the darts of the enemy and establish your kingdom, we pray. 
But until that day, Lord, may you equip the feet of your saints to carry your gospel to those who need it. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. I love you guys. We'll see you next week.